Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm Damien Fantato, digital editor of FT Advisor. Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of England, famously said open-ended funds which invest in illiquid assets are built on a lie. This is particularly evident when it comes to property. Whether it's because of Brexit or the pandemic, over the past few years, open-ended property funds have been opening and closing more regularly than a pub landlord. And now Aviva has called it a day and will be winding up its open-ended property fund over liquidity issues. Well, to fix this, the Financial Conduct Authority has proposed a new type of fund, the Long-Term Asset Fund. These are funds which have unspecified liquidity tools, which could include notice periods, deferred redemptions, or limits on the amount of a fund which can be redeemed over a set period. The FCA has put its previous plans for a set notice period of up to 180 days on hold while it investigates the issue of LTAFs. So, what does this mean for advisors and platforms? How can this fund practically be offered to investors? What does this mean for property as an asset? And are the FCA's attempts to square this circle in vain? With me to discuss this are Ryan Hughes, Head of Active Portfolios at AJ Bell, and Mike Barrett, Consulting Director at the Lancat. Hello both. Hi, Danny. So, start by asking you for your hot takes, I guess, on the uh, long-term asset fund. Uh, Ryan. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the the kind of broad concept of this has been kicking around a a little while with the Investment Association proposing something, I guess, that looks broadly like what the FCA has uh, has talked about uh, very, very recently. So, yeah, I think interesting idea. Um, Definitely the premise is along the right lines, in my view, of uh, of trying to think about helping investors understand the importance of matching the liquidity of the underlying asset with the liquidity of the fund. Um, so premise absolutely good, uh, great. Uh, however, a long journey, I think, to get there and a lot of education needed on the way. Michael, Bay. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. I mean, I, th- I thought it was a really, really interesting consultation paper and particularly it's kind of the, the opening part talking about the value that investing in some of these assets for the long term can add and particularly there is a section talking about um, the default funds for DC investments um, and an additional 1.4% higher returns per year and everyone knows the magic of compounding that over kind of a 30-40 year period that you might be invested in particularly as I said in a DC default fund. Really really interesting from that perspective. Um, I think we, we tend to look at things more kind of on the practicalities of what it means for platforms, what it would, would mean for advisors in particular, um, rather than necessarily the investment side. Um, and the, the discussion around notwithstanding kind of default funds and all the rest of it, how widely these assets, these funds might be available to to retail investors. I think is is a very very important discussion, and, and I'm sure advisors would would want to consider just what that would mean for them, and whether it's sophisticated investors or professional investors, all of that type of thing. Yeah, I guess one of the issues with the previous proposal of uh, a notice period of up to 180 days could, or 90 days um, was that it would make it very hard to can make those funds part of a, a portfolio for, for, for platforms to offer them. I suppose, Mike, this is even more thought because the FCA hasn't actually specified what the, the tools 
should be that they they've, that the, the fund management firm should offer they've sort of left it up to the firm it could be it could be a notice period it could be restricting the amount of the fund that can be withdrawn over a month for example yeah i think i think it's fair to say i mean st- stepping back from kind of the LTAF long-term asset fund path back into into the property bit which initiated this work um i think it's fair to say the fca um, probably underestimated quite significantly um, not only the work it would take to platforms to solve it but I think in particular what was happening in the platform space and how advisors were constructing portfolios so the suspensions fund suspensions have been around for for as, as long as I can remember um, but they're, they're a fairly blunt tool I think to for, for individual investors to, to kind of deal with liquidity problems and if the problem is that somebody starts moving some too much money out of an individual fund and that creates liquidity problems and problems for the rest of the investors, I'm not sure that individual investors are the actual issue. Is Mrs. Miggins, Mr. Barrett, uh, maybe Mr. Hughes, um, if they start moving millions and millions within their portfolios. Um, realistically, on a platform, the amounts involved in that, I don't think are going to create that issue. Furthermore, the, the bigger issue is that, um, and our research supports this, it's very rare that advisors are, are constructing bespoke portfolios for individual clients. They're running a centralized investment proposition. They'll be outsourcing to model portfolio services, that, that type of thing. So the investment, what that means is that the, the kind of the gatekeeper, the person making the investment decision is outside of the advice firm. It's certainly not the individual client who's moving money. It will be a discretionary fund manager. And then it goes right back to your point. How do you add in individual notice periods around that where that individual client who's invested in a model portfolio, which could be across 15 platforms, when they say, right, I want to redeem, redeem my money now, I'm retiring or whatever that is. Uh, yeah, very, very hard to for the, to see how platforms can do that. Normally, when a consultation paper comes out, you don't see a lot of change between consultation paper and final rules. But I think this this is one where the FCA have, have put their hands up and, I guess, on a more positive note, listened to the industry and said, yeah, this is actually, this needs a lot more thought to see how we could implement it. Mm. Ryan, you're, you're a head of active portfolios. How would you... Uh sort of uh, address these issues that uh, Mike has just raised of having a having an, an LTAF in your in your portfolio yeah um, I, I think it's a really good question that I don't have a really good answer for right now uh, in, in all honesty I, I think that the whole industry is built around the notion of daily traded funds you know whether that's the right thing or, or, or not um, it's the position we we've moved to uh, I mean, if we think about property, you know, 15, 16 years ago, property funds weren't allowed, um, you know, in, a, in an ISA and therefore were very much an, an pretty much an unused asset class that was the domain of life and pension wrappers uh, there. So, yeah, we, 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 I guess we've been in a place before where illiquid assets have been targeted at certain bits of the market compared to others. I think thinking about a, uh, an LTAF type structure, I mean, we, we run open-ended funds and therefore having uh, having funds that have limited uh, redemption or, or notice periods in our, in our open-ended funds, I think it's perfectly manageable. But doing that in a managed in a managed slash model portfolio structure uh, where you've got rebalancing, where you've got clients coming in and out um, you know, different, different times uh, would present much more um, of a challenge. But I think ultimately for me as a fund manager, that, that 
also thinks about, I need to understand what my proposition is, what am I offering to customers, and I need to make sure that the, inve the investments within that are suitable for the product I'm giving to the customer. And if I'm saying, on the one hand, I'm offering you daily access to my product, well, it's incumbent on me as a fund manager to make sure that within that, the assets I hold and I invest offer the same type of liquidity underneath. So you know, what that might mean if we go down this structure is that certain asset classes uh, are not uh, usable for model portfolio solutions, uh, and that might not be a, a great outcome. Um, or we simply find a different structure. Maybe we use the investment trust structure, which is already there, uh, where we accept that the trade-off for liquidity um, is that we get a lower price. Um, so yeah, the solutions in some respects already exist. It's just that certain parts of the market, some platforms can't facilitate it. And, and therefore, people uh, think there's only, there's only one answer to this. Mm. So it just might just end up being the case that you just don't put property into portfolios because it's just as an open-ended fund, because it's just not not worth it, not possible. Not yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, we, we when we launched our, uh, our active uh, MPS three and a half years ago, we zero-weighted commercial property because we were worried about suspension risk. Um, so already at that point, we were thinking – Okay, what's the suitable? You know, what, what's the liquidity profile of different assets? What's suitable for our for our portfolios? And yes, our you know the mathematical model says you should have some commercial property. Well, the realistic overlay on top of that was yeah, but you know, we might run into some liquidity problems here, and and we don't want to take that risk. So we were already going through that process and and, and excluding commercial property from our approach and. If we want to access infrastructure, well, there are infrastructure investment trusts. If we want to access property, there are there are REITs uh, out there. So, yeah, there, there are other options available to us as fund managers for tools to use. Um, so we, it's not a case, I think, of forcing everyone down the, the LTAF uh, approach. It's probably more a case of the broader industry upping its game and allowing access to all different types of products across the, across the platform market. Mike, we've seen Aviva decide to call it a day do you expect that this is going to be the first of many asset managers particularly if they have to go down this LTAF route yeah I think I think certainly my experience with with advisors through through the Woodford um, episode um, which um, I appreciate we could do a, a whole series of podcasts on that one so uh, a lot of advisors became very very nervous around the word liquidity and I think it's probably fair to say there was a few advisors who, who perhaps didn't understand the issue, but uh, I think more importantly, their clients started getting nervous about about illiquid assets, and it's kind of going back to what Ryan's saying: the industry needs to understand this and explain what's going on here, and yeah, be able to kind of display these products in a, in a lot of a better way. But I think there, there is definitely there is definitely a, a, a cohort of advisors and certainly clients who will see kind of the words illiquid assets and think that that is automatically a bad thing and will want to get away with it and I'm, i suspect that's what's what's happened with with some of the some of the what's happened in aviva and some of the other property funds where they've opened up again and have seen seen the redemptions and it's just people making knee-jerk reactions perhaps and just wanting to get out of something that they perceive to be to be riskier than it probably is mm. I'll just come in, come, come in on, on, on that. Just over to, I mean, I, I always think it's really interesting when we talk about liquidity that the perception of the need for liquidity is greater than the need for liquidity itself. 
Uh, and so you know, so many investors in their pension um, who are taking a 10, 20, 30, 40 year uh, investment horizon are worried about daily liquidity when, frankly, it makes you know, literally no difference. Um, I mean, if you look, if you look uh, at the, the evidence for a property as a diversifying asset class, it's very, very good. Uh, at, at diversifying a portfolio and, and arguably should form a part of a long-term portfolio, in my view, uh, if you're investing on a, on a on a very long-term view. But we've got ourselves as an industry in, in this situation where we've convinced people that it's imperative that they have the ability to get their money back when they want it, even if they don't need it. Uh, and we've got to we've got to move on, I think, from that and uh, and and tell people that if they want to harness the illiquidity premium, which Mike you know, was talking about with his first answer. Is that it comes at a consequence, uh, and the consequence is access. Uh, and we've done a, the industry has done a very bad job at that over the last the last fifteen years. Yeah, we could we could widen this discussion to high yield bonds, smaller companies, you know, emerging market company debt. Um, yeah, there's a whole load of different different things that fall into this scope uh, where the illiquidity premium is interesting, um, but it needs to be in a structure that works for investors in a form that they understand. Um, yeah, get maybe access to your ISA is maybe very different to access requirements in your pension. I suppose if you need access to the money quickly, you probably shouldn't be investing that money in the uh, in the market. Yeah, I mean the, the FCA in, it, in its paper in its feedback paper, you know, it talks explicitly about that in saying in the, in the response to some of the questions that the some of the feedback the asset managers had given, where where they were. I think the asset managers have you know, obviously tried very, very hard to defend the status quo. Uh, it, it's saying, well, if you're worried about short-term liquidity, then maybe these funds aren't suitable for investors in the first place. Um, so there's some quite interesting, strong rebuttals to, to some of the feedback in the, uh, uh, in the consultation. And I, I did also note the FCA many, many times says, if we, if we do implement uh, the, um, the notice period, uh, we will ensure that there is an 18-month to two-year implementation time before it becomes rule. So although they're thinking about it, I the way I interpreted the, the, that statement being so frequent was that, you know, this hasn't gone away, guys. We're, 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 this is still firmly on the agenda. We appreciate there's some things to iron out, but we're going to give you some notice to do it. But but don't think you've got away with it this time around. Mm. Mike, uh, Ryan mentioned investment trusts. And um, one of the um, topics of conversation uh, that you often get in relation to investment trusts and platforms is their lack of availability on platforms. How is, is that looking now? Yeah, I mean, ge generally anything other than funds and a tiny bit of cash along the side is on, the, on a platform is, is a minority sport. Um, so it's something like 90% of assets on, on funds, uh, on platforms are, are in open-ended funds. There's the availability question. It's kind of gone away. Um, so particularly with the likes of Quilter um, migrating to their new platform, onto more modern systems and all of that. But I, I think most platforms will have the ability to hold some sort of um, exchange-traded assets. The, the barrier is more kind of the yeah the, the additional costs that will be doing it, it, it they don't tend to fit very well with the reporting with particularly with model portfolios perhaps and there'll be trading costs on top of it um maybe a little bit of lack of understanding from from advisors around how these instruments work and or 
to flip about if they, they, they perhaps do understand it and have decided that the additional complexity, the additional risks that are there with an investment trust, uh, that, that, that risk premium Ryan talked about isn't worth it. Um, so there's, there's quite a few barriers, I think, which, which need to be overcome in terms of how platforms can handle exchange trading assets. And then it's kind of the, the education point as well. I think that that will be part of the work for, that platforms might need to do if yeah, generally anything which isn't daily dale platforms handled very, very badly. Um, and that development work, that that two year um, development period, which Ryan talks about, I think that will be that will be an element of what they need to do to just to try and up their game a little bit um, beyond just being able to handle funds. Mm. So would you anticipate that if um, LTAFs came into existence, they would be in a similar position to trusts as on, on when it comes to platforms? Possibly, yeah, possibly. I, I think I think the the bigger question for platforms will be the the bit we talked about earlier around the type of investor this will be this will be offered to. So, will it be a retail investor? Will it be a professional, sophisticated investor? Uh, and oh, I think yeah. And again, you'll probably split that down between the, the advised platforms and the direct to consumer platforms. So, I know in in Ryan's um, parish there, but he has. Um, two, two of those, I could see a scenario where perhaps it would be on the advised side, where there's an advisor there making the suitability assessments that are there for an advisor, but maybe on the D2C platform. And again, I'm putting words words in AJ Bell's mouth there. I, I think you, you might start to see differences differences coming through on that, depending on that definition of who, yeah, how far does this go towards retail clients? Mm. Ryan, I know you don't necessarily work on the platform side, so um, you don't necessarily have to respond to that. But on the um, issue of property in a portfolio, is what are the alternatives? What role briefly do you see a property playing, and, and what assets are there that can replace that that role? Um, so I, I will. I would happy to kind of respond very briefly to, to Mike's point, just from a certain perspective. I've, I've got the um, the Investment Association paper on my on my screen here on LTAS. And I think the very first line is interesting. The LTAP has been designed to be particularly helpful for defined contribution pension schemes. So even the Investment Association itself, it it didn't start off saying this is a great solution for the whole market. Uh, It's already in line number one, narrowing down the scope of of, of the type of uh, investor uh, type of approach that the LTAP structure might be suitable for. Uh, And and that in, in itself, I guess, does highlight some of the problems um, that we're just talking about, uh, about the type of client that it might be suitable for, the type of structure uh, and the, the understanding barriers, uh, as well as the practical barriers that, that might come with that. So you know, if the IA is flagging that online number one, I think we're still quite some way away from finding an industry-wide solution that covers you know, kind of a D to C market right through to an institutional pension market uh, there. So I think there are a few, a few uh, barriers uh, to, to get through first. I mean, on your on your second point about alternative assets to property, well, I think what's interesting in the in the REIT market is actually how the how that bit of the property market's developed compared to the open ended market over the last few years. So the, the the open-ended market for property has basically been a pretty blunt instrument, which is here's a relatively large fund that owns uh, a bit of all types of property. Um, and I'm simplifying that, but they've got some offices, they've got some industrials, and they've got some retail. The REIT space is quite different in that we're seeing these uh, the evolution of some specialist REITs that actually enable you to cherry pick the type of exposure that you want. 
You only want supermarkets, go and buy the supermarket REIT. You want healthcare uh, businesses, only go and buy a healthcare REIT. So you, you there are a couple of uh, student accommodation ones as well, increasingly, aren't there? Student accommodation, uh, yeah, absolutely. Logistics, big box warehousing, you know, all of these types of things. The market's fragmented in the REIT world in a way that it hasn't uh, in the um, uh, in the open-ended world. And I think that actually presents much more interesting opportunity that enables investors to to get the type of property exposure they absolutely want. Part of the challenge of open-ended property over the last couple of years is we all know that lots of it's been exposed to high street retail. Uh, and we all know that the last, well, probably the three of us, we probably haven't spent much time in high, on a high street doing any shopping for, for a number of years, um, I, I would say, so in my own experience. So we know the trends that are going on there. Uh, and, and that's part of the um, reason why I think these funds have become less attractive the REIT space is very different. Uh, you can cherry pick, you can bespoke build the own, your own type of exposure. So I think it's a case of finding alternatives to property necessarily. It's about thinking about what type of property, if I want it in my portfolio, do I want? Mm. I suppose it's just a question of accessing those REITs, going back to the various issues that Mike pointed out about um, uh, trusts on, on platforms. Yeah, yeah exactly. And then it's, then it's really a question of saying, well, what's leading this discussion uh, in, in the industry? You know, is it, are we trying to do the best thing for, for investors and, and all, all customers and give them uh, choice and access uh, in, in the widest possible form? Or are we worried about protecting the vested interests of certain parts of the industry um, in not going down that route? I would hope it's the former, but as ever, having been around long enough, I fear it might be the latter. Mike, is this ultimately just a fool's errand? Uh, can you square this circle of, um, you know, allowing people to invest in, in in a fund which is sort of open-ended but invests in something like property? Yeah, I, I definitely think kind of keeping Ryan's kind of uh, cynicism beaten down by several decades of the industry team going. I wonder by the end of this eighteen to twenty-four month period where the nature will have taken its course. And either the funds will have become so popular that they won't have any liquidity issues or they'll become so unpopular that they won't exist and advisors won't be selecting them. So actually, the the functionality of the process and the governance that sits around the solution will be will be irrelevant because the, the market will have decided what's, what, what's going on. Um, I, I also think there's... May, there's also maybe a, an answer that sits within some of the existing regulation here. So again, Ryan talked earlier about the importance of clearly understanding and documenting the target client that the solutions are being deployed with. Um, Prod has embedded those rules in for quite a while, yet um, some of the work which was carried out towards the start of the year, I think the FCA published something around this this loop, this communication that's supposed to sit between the distributors, um, so the advisors, the institutions, whoever it is, and the manufacturers, so the fund managers, that kind of that continuous MI around these are the target clients we're using the services for and are these are these outcomes that we're trying to deliver being met, that loop doesn't tend to exist so much. And I wonder whether that's part of the the solution here so the distributors working more closely with the manufacturers and being able to identify when they do get big clients big investments into a fund which might start to cause some issues working a little bit more closely with the asset managers there to try and understand what's going on and yeah both those those rules are in place now and i i 
my my sense is that they they probably they could probably be enforced a little bit more stringently than they are. I guess the news around open-ended property funds has been so negative for such a long time that you'd have to be quite brave to suddenly start uh, allocating huge amounts uh, of your portfolio to them. There, there is. I think I think there's also, we've, I've seen through, throughout this on the property side, kind of uh, treasury lurking in the background and talking about kind of building back better and stimulating growth in, in, in these, these investments as well. So I think there's a little bit of a political pressure where, yeah, People want to see the high street stim stimulated and growth coming in and and all the rest of that stuff. So um, a complete kind of for for investors to completely walk away from property, I think doesn't historically doesn't make sense from an investment point of view. And I think yeah, politically, I'm not sure that's what what people are wanting to see at all. And in fact, probably the exact opposite. Ryan, what do you think? Do you think this is all ultimately in vain? I don't think. I think it's you know it's easy to get. To, to not be able to think past the status quo. Um, and, you know, if we'd have wound the clock back 20 years, we probably would have not been able to see how the market was looking, you know, today. So I don't think it's in, in vain because I do think something needs to change. Um, and in the, ultimately, if we if we are in a world where suspensions are, are more frequent, you know, that will be damaging to consumer confidence in our industry. The FCA acknowledges that in their, in their consultation uh, feedback. But... Uh, and it's a big but, you know, what, what is this future solution in terms of how, how do we square the circle with worrying about liquidity and access when, it, when it's not you know, actually required? In, in, the, in the days uh, where you got your pension statement through the post once a year and you filed it away probably without reading the first, you know, beyond the first line, you know, people didn't worry about access quite as much, did they? And, and, and the long-term approach uh, seemed to favour them, favor them quite nicely. So... Something needs to change. The FCA needs to grasp the nettle, I think, on this. And the industry needs to recognise that that, that change is happening. I mean, I do, think, I do think if the market, if all of the, the participants in the market could facilitate REITs, um, I don't think there would be as much reticence from the, asset, the open-ended asset managers uh, in, in worrying about converting from uh, an open-ended fund to a listed fund. Uh, but equally, at the same point, uh, I'm no accountant, but I don't think it's uh, it's actually possible at the moment uh, without some dispensation to convert from from an OIC to a listed vehicle uh, to a REIT structure uh, either. So there's a lot of work to do even to move from the current position a little bit down the road, let alone uh, going all the way down the road to getting to this LTAF uh, approach. But do you think, just to finish that point, the investment trust structure is, you know, it's there. And the AIC are being very vocal saying, yeah, hang on, guys, you know, look over here. We, we're here and we've got a solution to help you. Uh, and if the investment trust market and industry doesn't grasp this golden opportunity to get them that structure front and centre again, uh, then then you have to wonder if it, if it ever really will. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, it's going to be uh, interesting to see how this pans out uh, over the next uh well, as, as you suggested, probably realistically a few years, I guess, until this is all planned out. Thanks very much to uh, Ryan and thanks very much to Mike. And uh, thank you for listening and tune in again next week for the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.